0: Hey there, welcome to the Faces of Marketing podcast where we talk about the human stories and lives of different people and perspectives in the marketing profession and entrepreneurs and movement makers. This is your host, Ryan Buchanan, and I'm here with my sister and best friend, Kirsten Quigley, who is founder and CEO of Lunchskins. Welcome to the show, Kirsten.
1: Hey, (laughs) Ryan. This is gonna get weird. Yeah, this is gonna
0: be a different kind of podcast because... Uh, Because you're my sister, and the audience is going to hear stuff um, about our family, and just all of the things that, um, you know, not only family stuff happens, but also being in a family of entrepreneurs, Yeah, and mom and dad are both entrepreneurs, you and I are, and um, Sister Shannon has been super supportive in both of our things, and so... It's gonna be it's gonna be fun to get into some good stories here. So, with that, um, just uh, you know, you a lot of people don't know. At least my friends don't know that um, you were born in Sasebo, Japan, mm-hmm. on a naval base. Then, mom, dad was stationed over there sixty-seven to seventy. You were born in sixty-nine. 69 yep. So it's not like you don't have tons of memories from Japan.
1: I do not have um, vivid memories from Japan, but I do, I do have you know, the remnants of um, a nickname that came from that time that people always think of as my Quigley connection. I, I was called Q from a very early age. by, And I can always tell who the old, old friends of mine are because they still call me Q. And it comes from being in Japan, being a baby in Japan. And I was this little, bald, blue-eyed Thing that looked like a doll, so they called me Q-chan. And so, from way back when um, I got the name Q, and early childhood friends call me Q to this day, and then I ended up marrying brett quigley with the last name q and and he calls me q and people thought i just sort of got that from that kind of you know relationship and that but it it goes back to japan and it always makes me feel kind of grounded to the people who knew me the longest because i had that little q chan q name from way back when and um yeah that that's no no memories of japan but um
0: until we went back when you were 18 i was 12 yeah Um, yeah yeah we'll get we'll get to that we'll get there yeah we'll get to that so um so growing up uh you know you and I we just got by the way we are uh taping this at Black Butte Ranch at our family place and we just hiked Black Butte with your four kids you and Brett and um my family of four uh and so uh, with a
1: snowball fight at the top, yeah. Which you and you get you get six kids anywhere, and somebody's gonna start something bad. So it just takes one bad bad egg, and of course it was one of mine who got the snowball fight started, and then it turned into a full scale like face planting yeah. throwdown yeah. in the snow, which was awesome.
0: Yeah. So, um, so we our kids have all these memories of Blackbeet, but our um, growing up, you're right. you had six years on me, so you. Uh, we kind of at one and a half moving from Sasebo, Japan to Rockville, Maryland. And then what was child look childhood like childhood. from your perspective?
1: For me, I associate like my first decade of life with our farm. And it was this family farm, you know, not a ton of land, but out in Maryland, um, towards the western part of Maryland and so we grew up as like these weekend farmers. We were a suburban family, totally normal, normal childhood in suburbia and then we'd go off to this farm on the weekends and my parents would literally put on the work boots, get into a tractor and kind of become these weekend farmers and we had so many um, funny stories. I mean a lot of hard work but they were on tractors and working with animals and crops and the farmer next door and mending fences, which actually was awesome for us. And you were really young at the time. But for me, it was freedom. I mean, it was absolute pure freedom for hours. And so it was like this dirty pond, woods, you know, trails, land, an old pony. We had ducks and different animals. People would like gift us for random birthdays. We ended up with a whole random like menagerie of animals out there, but we saw a lot. We walked
0: a pig around, yeah, around our neighborhood. the suburbs of yeah. Rockville. Like,
1: it's so, It was just comical. But what I loved about those years was it was independence, it was freedom, and it was a lot of exploring. And I think that's where my, I mean, we spent entire days outside. There was no inside. The inside was an old barn, you know, an old corn crib that we had to build too. So that's where I feel like I got myself connected to landscape and place and just roaming the hills and the woods. And I'd make up all these adventure stories. I was definitely like playing off of the Little House on the Prairie, you know, kind of show where that was my favorite show growing up where I was like pioneer girl. And I was constantly inventing these stories of rescuing people and saving people. And it was kind of scat- sad if you think about it because I would make up these fictitious, you know, kind of reels in my head of people getting, you know, been by a snake or attacked by something, and I was racing off to save them. And so I spent hours out of that farm. You were always by the pond with a little, um, a, Bam- a bamboo, bamboo fishing, fishing pole. <laughs> yeah, it's like your signature. You Ryan with his little bamboo fishing pole, a rusty little you know hook, and you were catching little. Sunnies and catfish, if you were lucky. And I was like tromping around the woods and making up stories about saving people and, you know, just inventing a whole and, bunch of adventure.
0: And in wintertime, uh, it was uh, frozen lake. Um, sometimes like geese would get frozen with their well, feet that in there, the which story was really sad. Of yeah.
1: our, we'd get ducks at Easter in our little suburban, you know, normal neighborhood. And then we'd take the ducks out to the farm in the summer and we'd get really pretty cool winters back then. And so if it, if it was cold enough to freeze that one year when we went out and it just broke my heart, the little duck feet were frozen to the ice and a fox had gotten them. But we saw a lot of life and death out there, which as a little kid, I don't think I knew how, um, how how kind of unusual that was. I mean, not a lot of kids are exposed to things dying and birthing. I mean, I helped deliver baby cow and do C-sections with the, you know, the neighbor vet. And we had, um, w- there was this, the farmer next door, I remember. who was kind of a funny old man and we didn't know him very well, but we always snuck into his property. And we'd go over there. I'd go over there with one of my best friends, Lori Bean, and we'd go back to this ravine where he had, he dumped all of the animals after they died. And so it was like this graveyard, animal graveyard. And we'd bring back skulls and hip bones and, you know, pieces of spine and, and just crazy, you know, as, as carcasses of like the cows and the horses and the animal, big, big livestock that had died. So I just I just look back sometimes and think about I, the fact that, you know, mom and dad were somewhere, God knows where, working on something. And we were roaming around, sneaking into people's property going to old grave, you know, animal graveyards and bringing back these nasty old bones. Some of them picked clean, but some of them still had bugs and stuff in them. And we'd nail them up on our, you know, barn or in the loft and just mess around with them. And yeah, yeah
0: I, what's funny today, cause you always reflect yeah. on how you grew up and all of that. And, um, you know, we talk about Mom and Dad going to a farm on the weekend, like after they've worked their butts off all week, and then yeah. they would like their idea of re- relaxation is uh-huh. like working the farming, fields and farming or like in yeah. the yard. Like they'll Gardening. come out to they'll come out to Black Butte where all <laughs> there's so much recreation all around, and it's just like the paradise on earth with all these hikes and everything. And Dad will be you know um planting <laughs> plants that aren't gonna last because it's the high yeah. desert here, but yeah. it's just. It's instilling it's- the work hard, play hard, but then work hard again.
1: <laughs> but but I think that they loved getting their hands dirty and building something. I mean, in some ways, it is very entrepreneurial. You know, they each had their own businesses that were not ha- hands-on craft. You know, they were businesses. And they'd come out to the farm. And I think that the idea of taking a raw piece of land and creating something, whether it was a garden or crops or a little corn crib or fences and you know ponds and just creating this little rural landscape must have been really rewarding um for them and for us it was it was a playground and for me it was like the makings of an adventure for me i mean truly i i think i was alone as much as i was with a friend or or you or shannon but even alone it it was like the fodder for stories in my head and i just Kind of morbid, though. I had more um, death going on in my stories. I was always saving someone. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, just for the audience's sake, I'm going to call Sister Shan, Sister Shannon, because my wife is named Shannon, and, <laughs> and you my, have, my
1: sister-in-law's name Shannon.
0: Yeah. So, uh, Kirsten's kids, my nephews and nieces, have three Aunt Shannons. So yeah, it's very we confusing. Love that. We so, love that. anyway, Sister yeah. Shan, two years older than you. Yeah. You both, uh, for me, you know. Uh, looking from the outside, I saw summer camp, this Camp Nakonawa mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that mom went to and sent, and then you and Shannon, Sister Shan, went there. And it was this very, like, empowering girls, like, formative experience at all girls camp mm-hmm. on a lake in Crossville, Tennessee. My daughter, Grace, and Emma went there for a year. But, like, every girl, cousin, niece, every yeah. everyone in our family has all went. gone to... This camp that is, like, absolutely amazing in so many ways, except for the food's not great and Kate gets sick every year. But... Um,
1: so many other things yeah. are great that we can overlook that. Um, you're, yeah, yeah you're about, right. Talk you're about right.
0: how I I, I think camp was really important with you and Sister Shan.
1: Absolutely. I think it... Um, Playing off of my early childhood on the farm, and then going down to this camp in Tennessee in the mountains of um, the Cumberland Plateau. So again, a lot of time outdoors, a lot of time, you know, active outdoors on a lake. And and to paint the picture, it was a very old school, traditional kind of place, not a jet setting motorbodie fancy dancy place. You're in a cabin, one light bulb, really, you know, outdoors. 12 hours a day and I think what makes this place so unique is it was a real character build character development was was pretty foundational there and the the roots of this place go back a hundred years it's actually having its hundredth year anniversary this year there was such a um, strong strong connection to legacy and to the, the aunts and grandmas and women in the past who'd gone there, who come back every year. So you were accountable to a bigger community than just your friends. You were accountable to their mothers and their aunts and their, you know, daughters. And all of it was this really wonderful connection to the past. Um, there was this neat sort of spirituality to it with the, the teams. I mean, they go back to Greek mythology and they played on a lot of old mythology at this place where they created these two teams. And yes, there was a healthy, healthy dose of competition, but there was also a real healthy dose of sportsmanship and leadership. And I think that's where I really cut my teeth as a leader because-
0: You were, our family lineage uh, that all was blood related was Amazons and then everybody else was Valkyries. Yeah, yeah. We can get
1: into Cheers later. But and I would get
0: like (laughs) three to four minute voicemails from Dad (laughs) after visiting about the battles between Amazons and Valkyries and war canoe races.
1: So what I what I loved as a young girl was big, big focus on um, sports and activities. Right, but then as you got older, you became the leaders of this group of. Of girls that were you were taking into different competitions, but also you were meeting once a week and having um, kind of a uh, a special sort of empowering, you know, meeting in in secret place in the woods, and it's all this a lot of secrecy, a lot of tradition. But I had an opportunity to really step up, and for you know six weeks of the summer, create kind of create the agenda and set the pace for 60 to 80 girls that you were in charge of. And you were their motivator, you know, the motivational speaker, their, um, a little bit of devotions and spiritual leader and their you know, kind of go into sports and, and also just build character and, and learn how to be a good person. So, so much of that was not just, you know, playing sports together and being a good, you know, having good sportsmanship. But it was also thinking deeper about, you know, the kind of person and kindness and consideration and character and yeah. all that stuff.
0: And now for our daughters, like what I love the most is they take their phones away <laughs> right away. Yeah, and then you can email zone. them, but then they print it out. It's you have to like, read it like a letter. Oh, yeah. I love that part. That's great. That
1: anything to get to just uh, sever the the uh, over addiction addiction yeah, yeah the yeah. addiction to the phone we are a big fan of that you know i'd get rid yeah. of it
0: so um kind of coming back because camp was kind of from eight years old to 16 or 17 yeah, yeah. coming back to um the the age-old question of when you were a 10-year-old girl yeah. and an adult came and asked you, like, what do you yeah. want to be when you grow up? What was yeah. your immediate response?
1: So easy. I'm telling you, it goes back to the farm. I wanted to be a vet because I had delivered a cow, a baby calf, and it, it died. But um, we, I was with that vet who was doing a C-section, and it was so mind-blowing because... We shaved the belly, we cut open the calf, and we we moved the stomachs aside, you know, because there's like four stomachs, and we pulled out this little baby calf and had to, you know, pull it out of the um bag sack it was in, and then just just that whole thing to me was less um sad but more scientific. It was it was fascinating. And I just remember my eyes were, you know, kind of everything about me, my senses were totally alive, and I thought, I'm gonna be a vet. I'm gonna be a vet. And those were the years when you know, we had so many animals coming and going. Like you said, dad got a pig for his 40th. Somebody would drop off a goat they didn't want. You know, we had ducks. We were just constantly like collecting these animals. And I just thought that sounded really cool to be surrounded by, you know, animals and saving them and taking care of them. And, And I think, you know, that little pipe dream ended when I, probably when I got a car and like life changes for everyone when they get their wheels and they kind of move away from the childhood little dream.
0: Well, I I wasn't there for that calf birthing, but I don't yeah. know what happened to me because <laughs> I can't deal with blood, I can't deal with needles like I am so not a vet yeah. or ever wanting to be that. So, um
1: you're you yeah. were busy. Your like formative years were the fort like mine was yeah. the farm, yours was the fort. You were yeah. always building fires, like fires. Yeah, fires. it would be like fire.
0: Ninety-five degrees and You're humid, like, I, I think and I need a fire, <laughs> have <to> have fire. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, like blow stuff up and <laughs> yeah. BB guns. You were and all, all over that the stuff. fires and and a lot of basketball and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. but that's actually a great segue because as we get to your <sighs> high school years, uh, you know, all three of us in the fam, we all went, we all graduated from Wooten High School and played softball all throughout. Which, by the way, I have more bat boy trophies oh, like I know. well like a than trophy. anything yeah. else like <laughs> I was like the best bat boy ever and like, that's what I remember being six years younger and like I would just go out and get the bats and yeah. then I would get to know all your friends on the softball team
1: and, yeah those are yeah. the years I mean dad you know coached us and then we we kind of evolved from those days and so high school was it was it was your kind of your classic I'm sure um High school experience of just eight you gotta channel the eighties though. Permed hair, blue eye shadow, acid wash jean jacket. You know, gotta rock that. Um we were fully eighties kids. I was, you know, eighty seven graduation. So um
0: And you and I both are I just finished series six of The Americans, which Oh, I'm I'm sorry. Yeah, you're yeah. starting the whole yeah. family's watching that. But it. like the the attention to detail on the acid wash oh. jeans and everything about the eighties and it's filmed where we grew up all yeah. in northern Virginia and and suburbs of DC and so it's just like flashback I, city. yeah and feathered yeah. hair you had like the Farrah Fawcett I'd feathered hair fully yeah.
1: permed and feathered and you know the makeup going strong and the blue blue was in but you know it was great great childhood I feel like great. Um, you know, charmed kind of childhood and and high school experience, not with its without its own ups and downs and heartbreaks and silly stuff like that. But I feel like, you know, we were lucky, like no big traumas in our in our lives and really supportive parents and and demanding parents in terms of expectations and stuff. So we all pushed ourselves pretty hard. You know, it was sports and academics and setting the bar pretty high, um, you know,
0: for for ourselves. And public school throughout, and yet, I, I don't know where I saw this, but it's one of the one of the best public school systems in Montgomery County, and so. Yeah. But and just literally, like the, the level of expectation of going to college. I do, you know, this is my twentieth podcast interview, so milestone mm-hmm. with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's fascinating to see how different people have different expectations both from the school system and also within the family of like, you know, do you even need to go to college? You know, so I've Mm -hmm. interviewed some folks who it's their first in the family to go to college and things like that. But like within our family, it was, you know, the bar was high. Like there was no question that you'd go to college and tour colleges and, you know, apply to some of the best. And so was, what was the factor? And then there's your own self drive, but you went to Stanford, like the decision to go there or to, what was your mindset like as mm-hmm. you looked at a bunch of different colleges?
1: Well, even just, you know, something you said about expectations in our family, honestly, high school was so competitive. Our public high school was so, so sort of a pressure cooker it was so competitive even when, when we were there. And now I know, you know, so many kids feel this, but I was driven more by my peers and more by my internal motivation and peer, you know, what I looked left and right and saw people doing was so impressive to me. I mean, again, pretty diverse too. It was not, you know, we, we had a pretty, maybe it's just the offshoot of DC where there's more diversity. We had a pretty, um, pretty competitive, pretty, hard charging group of people in our own class and maybe it's racially
0: in the, diverse and the high Jewish population I think um, like
1: Asian and Jewish yeah. and Indian. I mean we had we had a pretty yeah. diverse group of kids in my class that I'm still you know I'm still in touch with but um I'd say more than family pressure, there was a lot of um a lot of healthy pressure coming from our own high school, just regular public school kids who you know, set the bar pretty high for me. So when I think about it, and it's funny because, you know, I think about the decision to go to Stanford. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have any way to be searching up schools and looking at facts and checking things. I remember being a little kid back when we lived in Rockville before we even moved to Potomac and seeing the cover of a Stanford magazine or a brochure for Stanford at our neighbor's house. And then fast forward five, you know, ten years, I remember our neighbor's. Who had both gone to Stanford, the Muchmores, and just kind of putting together these little disparate pieces of, oh, that brochure cover looked really nice. Like there was a palm tree on it, and there was a really pretty building, mission style, and I was like, that looks really nice. And it was so different from my experience going and visiting a few New England schools, where honestly, I was afraid that if that, you know, if I could ever be as lucky, to, so lucky to get in, but the same kind of pressure that I felt in high school, where I was afraid I'd find more of that when I went to college because it just looked so competitive and so, you know, tense. And looking at the palm tree and the kids in shorts and sunglasses, I was like, oh, God, that's a really good school, and they look like they're having fun. So maybe if I – try to go there I can have fun too uh well and and there
0: was reality to that you got there and people are in flip-flops and like seemed like they didn't try there's an
1: undercurrent at Stanford of act like you don't act like you're not trying that hard play it really cool and chill but inside everybody's it's the duck you know underwater the feet are scrambling and paddling and above water you're like I'm cool I got this
0: University of Virginia was like that like (laughs) everyone would be like oh dude like I was out till two in the morning partying or whatever and you're like Dude, I saw you. You were in the you were library. You like cramming. Yeah. yeah. You were, like, <laughs> stop lying to me. Yeah. <laughs> because you're making me feel guilty because you crushed me on that test. Oh, and, God.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, so on the hike today, yeah. we were talking about one thing we haven't covered. We said we'd get to it because you are born in Japan. But we, I don't know if it was dad being the Navy, mom being a huge adventure and like mm-hmm. loving cultural experiences and things like that. But we did some pretty formative international travel, Mm -hmm. and I think that was pretty um, foundational to like um, scratch the itch and like give you even more of a passion towards travel and adventure and things like that. So, yeah, what I know when we went to when I was twelve, you were Mm eighteen. We went to Southeast Asia. Yeah, so it was Japan, Hong Kong, Thailand, and Burma, Mm -hmm. and. Like what stood out to you from, you know, 18 is this formative time. You must have just graduated from high school right before going to Stanford. And like what, uh, what stood out to Uh, you about that trip?
1: Yeah. You know, it was a pretty seminal trip for me because I think, you know, you're, you're still young, but you're starting to look ahead and see your break for independence. And I'm starting to think about going to the West Coast and being on my own and being independent. And we went on this big journey to Southeast Asia. And part of it was, you know, I was born in Japan. And it was this, hey, let's go back and sort of see what what that's all about. And And mom and dad always were really great at not being afraid to take the road less traveled and to go to places that are not necessarily very popular. I, I know we had a a few um cousins and aunts and uncles and maybe even friends look at our trip itinerary and go, What? <laughs> like why are you going to Burma? you know? So it was it was definitely off the beaten path, not your typical trip. But
0: we can't forget mom and dad's tradition of Yeah. Uh sister Shan Real serious with her boyfriend. Oh, um, they were testing out. Chris test, too. yeah, <laughs> testing out. Who ended up becoming our brother-in-law? Who's like a brother awesome. to us. Yeah, like it's awesome. amazing. Um, but he's from Kentucky. Never left the states. Never, you know. And right. here we go to bring Southeast him, him to Asia. Asia That's a and good idea. Go to like literally like way um, pottery villages in Japan that are like way off the beaten path and like crazy. Um, rafting experience in outside of Chiang Mai in Thailand where our guide was not experienced. It was like, we almost lost sister Shan because she got (laughs) sucked under a rock. Like when we talk adventure, this is not
1: luxurious. No, we were, we were carrying our backpacks. We were walking through jungle. We had a, a guide. And again, Pre-internet, pre-information overload, you had to write six months in advance a friend who might know someone who could put you in touch with somebody else who might be able to get a travel tour You know, guide who could take you through a certain part of the country. And so we were truly on dirt roads with somebody we'd never met, putting all of our trust in this person, late 80s, to walk us through the northern Thailand jungle and, you know... Wow, because cobras and eight hundred farmers die every year from right. cobra bites I mean crazy stuff like yeah. that that
0: and we had just experienced a snake show like the, the day, day before, before which is
1: <laughs> bad timing on his part like uh, really and bad Chris timing Chris was just Freaking
0: terrified out. and yeah. yeah
1: but but i I will honestly tell you that the it's still very palpable to me that the time the time when we we, when we'd find ourselves in these little villages and there'd be, you know, we'd be sleeping in the loft above a water buffalo or we'd find ourselves walking into another little village a half a day later. And I, I remember just pulling my journal out of my backpack and ripping out a couple pages and pulling out my pencils and just starting to, didn't know the language, but just starting to communicate with these little kids and draw stick pictures and, you know, couldn't even really write messages to each other. We were just drawing pictures for each other. And I had this strange sense of comfort. I I don't know what to call it, but it was this feeling like I like being a little bit out of my comfort zone, out of the familiar places, you know, because I feel really alive and really, um, just present and and turned on to my environment and my situation. you're learning,
0: you're learning so much more when you're learning new cultures and all of that. It's like all this like social and emotional learning that is, is so kind of like, I don't know, you just feel yourself growing, you know?
1: I have always, I mean, from that trip really planted, um, probably even more than all the formative years at the farm, but planted this notion of you know, exploring, exploring places you don't know and being really comfortable without all the information, without all the, the, the things you need, just that kind of set out and look, search, you know, look for new things, meet new people, experience new places, be comfortable with being uncomfortable in those places and just um, really kind of enjoy the journey. And so it, it definitely led to my... Um, my kind of my path in college too, was very focused on, um, international health and the and the environment and just sort of a global look at, um, a lot of these, you know, kind of developing countries and, and places around the world that, um, that that's where I kind of found my calling and ended up, and maybe I'm fast forwarding here, but wanting to recreate that experience. And by going into the Peace Corps and I, you know, you and I both know, I, I didn't, go into, the, I got into the Peace Corps, it was early 90s Gulf War, and they canceled our programs. But I remember being um, just really sure of that path that I wanted to go back and do something like that in another part of the world. And I think I got into Mali and in Africa, and then they canceled the programs, and I didn't end up going. But um, it definitely those early childhood times of one, spending a ton of time outside knowing your landscape, and two, then traveling to places that were unknown, but felt strangely kind of comfortable and familiar because you were, you know, in that zone. Um, and then,
0: yeah. So, and the Africa piece was the testing your now husband to see if he could hang with the family, uh, and all of our craziness. And that was 90. So that was like the year before you graduated where you would have gone into the Peace Corps the next year after that. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was, me being the little brother and having lions walk in between (laughs) our tents. And like, I was like the, um, what is, uh, I was like the ultimate in birth control or like, you know, so I was in the tent with you you and Brett and like mom and dad love that. So there's nothing (laughs) going on in your tent. And then when the lions walk past and we could hear them breathing as they're walking past, I am on top of like it's sandwich. a sandwich yeah, yeah. so <laughs> you're on the bottom bread, or I don't know but like all of us were as far away from the edges Edge, of the tent yeah, yeah. and so yeah um, you but, were our third wheel yeah like our little
1: nuisance. that
0: that trip to me had more of an impact because like yeah. that was like so much like vast beautiful great outdoors exotic animals all of that stuff and so that had to have an, an somewhat of an influence on you to go, Oh, it would be awesome if I could do the Peace Corps in Africa and then also what I remember you're you know, you're in love and not quite engaged yet when you applied to the Peace Corps, but I remember yeah a consultant, Probably not the best idea. Yeah, it was like <laughs> you're gonna be gone for almost two and a half years. It, it could you, change you. Y- yeah. Not only that, but like you're not gonna see yeah. your, you know, fiance and so the percentages of surviving your relationship surviving that is like very very low
1: it was probably it was probably for the best and things happen for a reason i never look back you know i'm always one of those kind of like keep keep looking ahead but you know the africa trip was a lot more comfortable than the asia trip so i don't know if you remember that but the africa trip was a a much more comfortable trip and a much more controlled trip oddly enough because you think you're literally out on the edges of the earth and it feels like you're on the edge of the earth it's so powerful and beautiful. Our
0: guides were way better. They were better. so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so
1: much more prepared, but I, I go back to, you know, the, yeah, the, we always laugh about what are the, disa- the disasters of the trip are the most memorable, and most of our stories come from our, you know, Asia trip, because they were, we had the most near disasters, but that's the best part of it, right? Um,
0: and the lesson learned from that trip where Shannon almost went under a rock is if you're as frugal as I am, always save a large bag of peanut M Ms yeah. <laughs> for survival because that yeah, I yeah. I like held on to that for five out of the six week trip, and they were partially melted, and I was like doling them out like right. one for you, one for well, me, one for the you. Sto- the
1: key part of the story is that we were on this ridiculous, again, totally poorly planned three day march through the jungle and staying in these little villages along the way and part of the the one leg of the journey was a rafting trip and we were looking for the rafts and the guy informed us that we were building our rafts Mm -hmm. out of bamboo Mm -hmm. so we literally had to collect bamboo from the forest that an elephant brought out and then we would strap up the bamboo together with twine throw all our bags on it and go down the river and so what Ryan's talking about is losing all of our food, all of our, our bags, everything. We hit a couple rapids. River was high,
0: and it was rainy season. And it was so it rainy was like season. Really dangerous.
1: Lost all our stuff except his like cherished bag of peanut M Ms. Yeah. And then he literally like a little pain in the butt would hand you one M M&M M at a time <laughs> for for a a whole day. We were like, can, I mean, just can I have half yeah. that one? Can I have a half a bite of that one? And you're like, nope.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, to, f- to be fair, like I, I turned to mom and I was like, are we going to make it are we out die? of here alive? <laughs> and then we wake up the next morning and the next village was literally 200 yards down we the could path. Have yeah.
1: Gotten there, eaten and slept yeah, in a normal place, but fun. no, it didn't yeah. work. Didn't yeah. work.
0: But we wouldn't have the yeah. story. So See, it's all like, about the we story. We like the story. Yeah. It's all, it's it's all about the takeaway story. is the story. Cool. So, um, so you moved to Seattle, yeah. um, when you were 24 or so with Brett and The reason why that's really important for me, um, I do think that what you were doing professionally in Seattle kind of led to this environmental piece and uh, starting Three Green Moms, and we'll get there. But I moved to Portland a year after you were in Seattle, and so we hung out all the time and had all these outdoor adventures. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Seattle was a chapter of my life that I still feel like – is a bit of the glue that's glued me and you together. It's glued me to a part of the country that I feel is like a second home. Um, it's a lot of my firsts, you know, my our first, Brett and I moved there in 2000, and it was our first home, our first dog, our first child. Did I say 2000? I meant 1995. Yeah, yeah it was, 1995. Yeah, 95. We were there, for, we left in 2000. 95. And Connor so, was born in... He was born in 97, 97. Jack was born in 99. And, you know, we we sunk our teeth into Seattle with this strange sense of urgency. Like we knew we might not be there forever. So we were going to cover as much ground as we could. And we did. I mean, and a lot of it, you and I did together too, but... And we built this wonderful extended family out there who many of them are still our, our very close friends today. And we ended up, we end up going out there to Seattle or San Juans or even Black Butte to continue to like build these relationships. And what I find so rewarding is um, just by sheer kind of times that we've, we keep reconnecting with these families up in Seattle. Our kids are now friends, and and because of social media and stuff, they can continue to be in each other's lives. But they're now building their own relationship together. My daughters with some of our Seattle friends and their daughters, and it's been incredibly rewarding. But Seattle was like a giant playground for us, and um, you know, Brett was hard at work in his medical training and doing his residency gone all the time. And remember you came out and
0: we, yeah. we, we'd, he worked 150 hours. Oh one yeah. week. Like literally, literally had 12 hours of sleep for an entire week. It's yeah. just, it's not legal anymore. It's
1: not, it's not, it's, <laughs> it's not, like, it's crazy. But I do remember a couple times where he would get home. I'd throw him in the car and we'd be on, he'd promptly fall asleep. And he'd wake up and we, the joke was he'd wake up in a different place every time. He never knew where he was because we were I was constantly like trying to make the most out of this chapter, this five, six year stint we had. So he woke up on a ferry once and he was like, where the hell am I? And I said, we're going to, we're, we're biking Bainbridge Island. He's like, what? <laughs> or we just, you know, we just. You some
0: did some killer hikes. We did. The Enchantment Lakes
1: is one of my favorite. Well that one we did without him. Yeah. that's right.
0: There's some ones and then I I don't know why I made him carry Connor, who's just Yeah, fat baby. Happy baby, but big and like Brett's exhausted and we're hiking up these massive inclines.
1: We did a lot of good stuff um, in Seattle. And again, I try to get us back there every couple of years because it's just kind of a fun playground for us.
0: So uh, this is a segue to kind of telling the origin story of yeah. starting your company. I don't know. I think it's tied to Seattle because I'm just very biased towards the Pacific Northwest. We are very eco-conscious here. I know you've always had that. Yeah. Um but I'm just connecting you to me for your origin <laughs> story because I'm very selfish that You're way. you
1: influence me. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, but you started sense. it in Maryland because you we moved did. back. Yeah. Mom and dad are, you know, Potomac, Maryland. You yeah. moved back. You've got four kids. Um, Just chaos of a family because it's a big, loving, loud family with, you know, kids doing tons of things and all that. And that was the kind of the ingredients for you to um, have an idea to start this really cool company?
1: You know, I think that the layers of all of your past and the things that influence you just kind of build up and build a fabric of who you are. And so for sure, the time spent at the farm in my early childhood and the time spent You know at camp in the hills of Tennessee and the times we went on these trips and we spent more time just hiking different landscapes you know from jungles to meadows to grasslands to whatever and the time spent in Seattle definitely weave you know a fabric of who you are what you value what you care about and you know outdoors and nature has always been a huge part of what I care about and you know led to a real passion for the environment but the concept behind Lunch Skins and you know the company Three Green Moms was really born around the kitchen table. Truly, uh, out of need. I think sometimes like you know, the, the the best ideas come out of what you need right then at that time and, and how are you going to get it and and build it. So um, yeah, I, I, it was it was around the kitchen table. It's a truly a grassroots story of. Um, Four kids, you know, young kids coming home from these formative early elementary school days, talking about, um, you know, things they're learning in school and things about um, being eco-friendly. And I was looking around at our lifestyle, thinking I was really mindful, but packing twenty lunches a week in plastic baggies and just blowing through tons of them. And I think it was really that aha moment of that statistic that one of the older boys, you know, Connor Jack, had said or learned, that 20 million plastic sandwich baggies were thrown out every day in school lunches. And I think that just kind of catapults you into a di- me into a different mindset of, okay, well, what are we going to do about that? And how can we make something that's, you know, better, greener, more sustainable? And so it just, it, it led to that idea of these little things. And right now, um, at that time, kids were learning a lot about big stuff. It was, you know, solar panels and Priuses. And this is all back when all that was really hot. But if you want to empower and create, you know, change makers in your family, you got to dumb it down to what can they do? How can they be part of this movement, this environmental movement, this of being more eco-friendly? And so, you know, through a lot of trial and error and even working with one of our aunts, Aunt Hope in Texas, who helped build some of the early prototypes of lunchkins, we came up with the idea of, you know, we, can, we could really have a big impact on something, a small change in your life, you know, single use plastic, disposable plastic. I mean, plastic is a pretty new concept. It's been 50 years, six, 50, 60 years that we've been, you know, just as a, as a culture and as a world kind of using tons and tons of plastic. So um, Lunchkins was truly born around the kitchen table.
0: Plastic is so convenient in the moment if you're not intentional about what happens downstream like plastic's great it's like plastic bags at the grocery store or whatever you just throw it away and if we didn't have to worry about the planet ever like plastic would be totally fine right.
1: You know it's so much more than that people think of it like it's just a use and a waste. It's about the production of it too. You got to look at the whole, the whole cycle of, Mm. you know, the chemicals and the petroleum that go into creating it, Mm -hmm. um, the byproducts of that. And then, you know, the disposal of it. And I think that kids now are so much more aware and mindful about, well, I, I, you and I both live on coasts, so we're maybe more influenced by trends on the coasts, but, um, you know, between the, the water bottles and straws and, and a lot of this single-use plastic has really caught the public eye and attention. And, you know, at a bigger level, I think companies are recognizing the demand that consumers are putting on them to, you know, source and bring better, better sustainable products to the shelves.
0: I'll get back to plastic and some of the partnerships that you have around um five gyres and um Gires. gyres thank you <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is that um some people say heroes and gyros Hero. and heroes whatever <laughs> it's hard it's hard for me anyway i have weaknesses um so uh so the actual tangible inspiration for the product came from like pastry bags or right.
1: So lunchkins 1.0, you know, the idea was let's build a better, smarter, greener, you know, version alternative to a plastic baggie. So let's make it food safe. Let's make it really easy to use and easy to clean. So it's gotta be dishwasher safe and let's just make it, um, you know, an easy product to reuse because you want it durable and grease-proof, moisture-proof, dishwasher-safe, you know, all these things that if you're going to change behavior, it's got to be convenient because people aren't going to, you know, jump through hoops to do something that isn't convenient. So the early stage of Lunchkins was building something that was reusable and durable and dishwasher-safe. And we did that, and and it's, you know, graphic too, beautifully designed, custom graphics, and you know great really really well received and we had just such early lucky success kind of dumb luck you know we within a year or two of launching the business we were in oprah magazine and it was just kind of this wild ride we were like holding on to the tail of this little idea this company and um it was awesome. And it was fun. And you're building this team of women and you're just having a great time. Um, and we rode that for for a while and we all the way to getting into Target seasonal business for back to school and even some year round business. And and, uh, you know, at, like many businesses, there is a natural kind of tapering of that business and and if you're lucky they just keep expanding and growing but in our case we started to see that bell curve you know kind of go the other way and think that's when you know rubber meets the road and you got to figure out okay you had you had a good ride are you in this like are you committed are you are you going to keep growing this and building it and figuring out what you know lunchkin's 2.0 looks like and i think that's that's where the real journey for me as an entrepreneur came and took off and
0: yeah I want to stop you right there because I you know I self-identify as an entrepreneur I meet with hundreds and hundreds uh year around you know around the year um I have almost never seen a story where it w- it seems so easy at first it was and I remember you know you sitting around the table um with some others on the team and it was just like Oh this is like this fun little idea. It's not really a company. It's just like it's just this like fun thing that we're doing and it's just and I'm like, "No, this is a real bit. Like this is catching on. This has all the ingredients of starting a movement." And and because like then Target picked you up and you catapulted you into major growth. But then you you know, we talk about it started to um you know, s- there were issues like target had 90 million of their customers have their ATM that hack that happened and that you, that like created this, um, this like vendor audit that they did or something like that. And so they pull back a little bit. And so then you had to go, Hey, do I, do we want to die a slow death here? uh, Or do I want to like reinvent the company?
1: Yeah. And, and you know, may, you may be overselling a little with the, the idea in the early days of this being, oh, this is easy, this is fun. I think I always felt like, no, this is not a hobby. This is a business. Like I'm, I'm working at this business. But um, you're right in saying that it it was a very b- different business when we started than it is today. And in fact, you know, we have a very small but mighty team and we take it really seriously. And, and I think... Um, we did have early success, and sometimes that lets you get a little comfortable, a little too comfortable when we should have been a little hungrier and a little more um, informed about where we were going with, you know, just, just really looking ahead down the runway to see what we were doing and being intentional about it and where we were going. I think we were a little reactive in the early days. It was it was coming at us. We were getting good press. We were getting, you know, good business and and, and it was consumers
0: wasn't. were loving it like and consumers gotta, were loving it yeah
1: but but honestly um there was there's a th- the one great thing about lunchkins is also a little bit of a of an achilles you know heel too which is they are durable they last a long time and so we weren't you know the repeat customer model is It was not working for us. Yeah,
0: we've used ours like a thousand times. Okay. Yeah,
1: but we need to freshen (laughs) that up. So, well, no,
0: now we're buying a new product. Yeah, right, right. And we'll get to that. But, but I want to get to pain first because it was painful. Yeah, I want to hear more about.
1: You want me to suffer? Yeah,
0: I want (laughs) to. So, uh, you know, we talked about this on the hike a little bit, but like right about four years ago, there it was this kind of like shit or get off the pot moment of like, I'm gonna really need to reinvest hard and kind of make a bet. Um bet the company type of move on this new product. There is also yeah. you know, uh some you know some th- ownership things happening yeah. and things yeah. like that. Like th- all that was really, really stressful.
1: Breakups are hard. Breakups are hard. And and you know there this this was a journey with, you know, friends and partners and there was a point at which it it was um it was time for some who just didn't didn't want to keep going down the same path that we were going and we didn't know what that path looked like there was a lot of uncertainty um we were really doing some soul searching and we were Doing a lot of digging deep to see if our mission was aligned, if our core values were in place. Like what does this company wanna be? What do we want to look like? The days of kind of reactive were shifting to proactive. What what is Lunchkin's where are we going with this company? Is it one product? Is it many products? Who what does our customer look like? How are we gonna drive forward? How are we and and I was sort of at that point, as people were stepping back and saying, you know what, I'm not sure I'm si- I'm signed up for this. So we, you know, numbers. It was a num- high risk path. It was a high risk path. The, the, you know, the money was not flowing in like it had been before. Some customers were pulling out. We just didn't see clearly where we were going. And yet we were soul searching, trying to figure it out. It's it's messy. It's complex um money was on the line you know how were we going to keep funding this direction that didn't necessarily have a real pipeline of business and customers and so it 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 was you know I, I told you it was around the time of your 40th birthday party and i i was just a ball of internal you know stress and nerves and fear but trying to look again the duck you know trying to look calm on the outside like i had this i knew what i was going to do um and it was it was the one of the hardest seasons of my life. I considered a six month, um, really painful period. I mean, just lost no sleep. weight, no yeah. sleep, didn't want anyone. I didn't want to fail. I just I was so afraid of failing and being vulnerable and looking showing too many cards and looking like I didn't have it together. And I just um, you know I so so badly believed in. This concept that people are looking for better alternatives, we're moving in the direction of more sustainable choices in our lives as opposed to less, and how are we going to get there? And how was I going to get there with a product that was not new anymore? It had been around, we'd already had the good press, we'd already had a couple big partners, and, and how was I going to build this company on the backs of something that no longer had that fresh you know, kind of the fresh legs.
0: Yeah, so talk about how you created the, how you got the idea for this new product, which is similar. Well,
1: it's the same, it's the yeah. same mission and values. I mean, we're a mission-driven company. And so Lunchkin's mission is is to really um, replace, you know, pla- single-use plastic and really help eliminate and replace with better, smarter, greener alternatives, you know. And we really, at this point in the game, there was no reason not to um, kind of think big and and innovate because we were going to die slow death if we didn't so the idea and you know and as we all we all know in kind of as entrepreneurs ideas are the easy part (laughs) that's the fun part the hard part is building a really great quality product and then getting it to market, and then scaling it profitably, and I think that's that's really that was my challenge.
0: Describe the product.
1: Yeah. So what we what we realized was, you know, Lunchkins had a good niche following. A, 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 there's a really loyal group of people who care about reusables, care about environmental sustainability. But what we wanted to do was we wanted to go big. I wanted to be a household name that replaced plastic baggies. I wanted to sit on the shelf in grocery stores next to Ziploc bags. I didn't want to be in a real niche, just um, specialty area of the store. I'd, I'd done that. I'd done that for five years. We'd been in the specialty part of the store. It was this wonderful graphic beautifully designed well designed durable long lasting reusable bag but what i what i had not done a very good job of was listening to feedback and customers and what i started realizing when i just sat with myself and sat with you know the the sat with the fear and the discomfort of where is this company going i kind of listened in my head to some of that feedback and the feedback was can't you make recyclable lunchkins can't you make something that's biodegradable I don't want to reuse it or I don't want to or the cost is too high and all these things were like bouncing in inside my head like okay so maybe they're high they're they're we need to make something more affordable people want something more affordable okay people want something disposable sadly I had to come to concept come to grips with the concept that maybe I just need to make a more affordable more accessible lunch skin product that everyday people can wrap their heads around everyday people can um, find in the store because we were also so so remote like we were located in these parts of the store you'd never go to and when I when I remembered doing some little um, in-store tests and stuff in say a, a Whole Foods seeing a woman run by with you know a gaggle of kids behind her and stopping her and saying hey what do you think of this product would you use it and it was our reusable bags she'd say yeah i'd love it but i've i've never seen it i wouldn't unless you were in the food storage aisle i would never know where to find you so i was sort of crystallizing all of this feedback in my head of we have to be where people go you can't make them go to a different part of the store we have to be affordable and we need to be kind of accessible in their minds like something they can throw out because that's what most people do and the gateway into being green for most people is recyclable we, we you know Everybody gets the blue bin. Every kid who can walk up to, you know, all the way up gets recycling. And you feel good. It feels good to recycle. It feels good to do something like that. So the Lunchkins 2.0 concept was, all right, so I know where I need to be on the shelf. I know customers want something affordable. And I know they want something, and they're, you know, that they can just throw away. So we came up with the idea of, you know, a box of like 50, So you're not really doing these one-off things, a box of 50 recyclable biodegradable paper bags that, you know, plastic free, there's no plastic and got to make it, got to, got to make it work for folks. They're used to something that seals shut. And what was on the shelf at the time was just a wax paper bag that didn't seal shut, had no graphics. So we just kind of took our Lunchkins branded, highly artistic graphic concept and put it on a better for you, you know, paper bag that's sealable, but it's not wax paper. It is not wax paper. I was totally kidding. You're kidding. It's, uh, it's awesome. I'll tell, I mean, just segue for a second. It's glassine paper, which is what the original potato chip bags were in the early 1900s, because glassine is a type of pressed paper that is so tightly pressed, the fibers go in one direction that it creates almost a glass like look and it's impermeable to you know, grease and moisture. I love learning new stuff. It's really functional, really cute. And, um, I think it delivers what people are looking for. You know, it's under five bucks. You get 50 bags and you're right there on the shelf.
0: And that reinvention of the company, um, led to target and whole foods nationwide. And maybe even in Canada and a few, um, other accounts all just really picking up on it.
1: We, you know, it, it was so validating to see the um, interest followed by the commitment from people. And we've really, we, we really are, you know, kind of seeing a whole new surge in, you know, Lunchkins and, and in where we're going with this company right now. And it's really pivoted to grocery, to everyday grocery, where this is exactly where we wanted to be. Um, and we really want to be that disruptor on the shelf next to a lot of plastic options. So, the hardest part about this stage of business is t- scaling. It's truly been working with a. T- I think
0: doubling year over year is hard for any business to do.
1: Yeah, well, just p- production, scaling yeah. and production. Um, I know you're like a people business and I'm a product business. And so getting your partners in, in operations and production to be able to go where you're going profitably. And it's just a totally different business model in grocery profitability-wise. We are learning so much and just kind of getting killed at the same time because distri- working with distributors is unlike working with our partners of the past. I mean, it's totally a different model. And, you know, it's it's... it's kind of kill it's it's hurts it's been hurting a little bit but we're learning we're learning a lot learning how to do it getting smarter you know building on our strengths and
0: well I want to tell one story to brag on you a little bit um and I told you this uh, a couple weeks ago I was um one of my friends entrepreneur friends Khalilad who I'm going to be interviewing next in a couple weeks um she runs a charter school in north portland for kids of color um with amazing outcomes called kairos pdx and uh i'm so we're doing a tour around the school and we have lunch in the cafeteria and i see i sit next to this like seven-year-old kid and he's you know he takes a sandwich out of his like lunch skins bag and i'm like Oh my gosh! My sister invented that product. Like, and so I'm talking to him for like, I don't know, maybe five minutes about how amazing this whole product. is. And he's like, "Who is this like middle aged man? Like, going on? Guy. Yeah, this totally yeah, creeper guy. guy. Like that. He's like, okay, enough. Like, <laughs> I don't. My mom probably makes me use these. Like, I don't even care. Like, they're cool, but like, <laughs> fine. Like, let there's me get
1: nothing cool about them. Actually, I'm sure he was like, "What is? this dude talking about. Yeah. Well, um, but
0: yeah, so that was kind of funny. So this is a marketing podcast. And so I would love for you to share, um, just like maybe your, your favorite marketing strategy that's worked great for you.
1: You know, I, um, I'm going to keep it pretty top level. I do not get into the weeds, but I can tell you that I have seen a massive difference between how we were treating marketing a year ago, and and what we did this year, um, and I've got awesome. I mean, Shannon's my right hand. Got another Shannon in the mix too, oh. who just runs the marketing side of of Lunchkins and has been doing a great job. What we what we learned was we had marketing operating by itself and sales doing its thing, and when we married the two and really collaborated and really started driving awareness and engagement around where we were in store. We're a, you know, a business that 90% of our sales, 90% of our business comes from our relationships with stores as opposed to just being an e-commerce website business. So, you know, the old days we were just Building up a community and looking at likes and, and engagement, but not really driving and focusing that community anywhere. And I, I I would say that partnerships has been our secret sauce this year, and being very intentional and very strategic about our partnerships.
0: Can you give some ex- one well I one mean example we were we were
1: lucky with this one. Um, you know, Foodstirs was a a great partner with us last year, and and they were launching in Whole Foods and Target at the same time that we were getting our you know, selves on the shelf and Whole Foods and Target. And so being able to kind of team up together and they're all about organic baking in, you know, in these boxes, um, kind of the new age Betty Crocker, but better. Um, and Sarah, Michelle, Sarah, Michelle Geller is the kind of icon behind that brand. Um, and, and just, just being able to align our values and mission with other good for you, better for you brands in stores where we are has been, and on shelves where we are has been incredibly powerful because we're able to tell our story with teamed up audiences and collaborate on those, you know, again, shared, shared values. And just the ripple effect has been so much bigger, so much bigger. I mean, Annie's is another one we're doing stuff with in January. And so just, I think just being, um, it's crazy that it, it's so basic, but we, we just weren't doing the obvious. Sometimes you got to step away and go, what are we not doing right here? And when we realized we weren't treating marketing like it was an integral part of our sales strategy, marketing was doing itself, market, doing its own thing, marketing sales was doing its own thing, selling, but the two weren't aligned and weren't driving activity towards each other. So, you know, again, things, uh, small team just little changes in the way you're doing stuff can really make a big, a big difference. And with our small team, that was huge.
0: That's awesome. So, last question: Is there anything, any story, or or, or anything that the audience might not know about you as you look back on kind of any a pivotal life moment that um, it's not a surprise that you are where you are? Do we cover everything already or are there any any last stories that we we haven't heard yet?
1: I we covered a lot of the good stories when you were where you started that and said anything people wouldn't know about you I think one thing that's kind of funny is I I am terrified of public speaking but I'm a really social person like it's it's a very strange disconnect. I love people I love talking to people I love being in small groups but the minute I have to like, get up in front of anyone I just it I could I could never do like a TED talk kind of thing well it's
0: super common I think 90% of people who are asked the question would you um are you more scared of public speaking or dying and they pick (laughs) public speaking like 90% of the time yeah yeah
1: it is it is
0: a very real fear so well, thank you yeah. so much for being on the show, Q. Awesome, right? Yeah. Uh, it was great. And I'm really excited to get some feedback on what people think of yeah. our story. That was fun. Uh, it was great. Loved it. Right. I'm going to interview you next. Yeah. But. All right. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>